Shalom, my friends. God's peace and grace be upon you today. Jim Martin once again coming to you from Lake Jackson, Texas. Pray that uh, you're very well, uh, aware, uh, well aware of God's uh, activity all around you in the world. We're watching some people are the Olympics, uh, and depending on your country, you can have appointment or encouragement or you can have elation over the performance of these select athletes. Uh, we were watching earlier in the weekend, and I noticed with interest the parade of nations as they came in during the opening ceremony and had the Japanese people represented by the young people lining the entryway, waving and, I guess, cheering, but beyond them, behind them, there were empty stands. And it's rather like a metaphor, is it not, for what's going on in the world today. Nations and individuals are parading, small and great, before the world, and before their own gods, before their own idols, with great expectations of high performance and uh, superior standings in the competitions. And yet, it's all to empty stands. There's no one listening, except God is listening. And He's wanting them to parade before Him. And indeed, in the last days, there's coming a day, my friends, when the nations, small and great, will parade before Him, waving their banners, and every banner will say, Jehovah is our God. They will not be exalting their own nations or their own powers and prowess, but they'll be exalting the Lord their God. And these will only be the nations and the people and the individuals who have embraced the truth of God and been redeemed by the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. Oh, what a picture that will be. And I think most of us will be in those grandstands, as it were, cheering on those who have given their lives and are those who are running the race even now. Not for a medal of any composition or color, but simply for the reward of hearing their master say, Well done, good faithful servant. As we begin this study, I pray that you would get your copy of God's Word in your hands in whatever translation, whatever language speaks most clearly to your heart. And open that word to Genesis chapter 45. And we're going to dive right in here and look at the process that God uses to turn bitterness into forgiveness. So pray with me, my friends. Father, I thank you so much for the opportunity to come to you today and to come before these several people, however many you bring to us, either in the Facebook or in the podcast. 
and uh, that you would uh, embolden them to speak your truth with uh, clarity and with boldness and with sensitivity, but with conviction to speak your truth in love to those around them, in their families, uh, in the mirror in which they look, to speak that truth to themselves and speak it to their neighbors, speak it to this world, to the passers-by, to the, to the occasional acquaintance, to those at their jobs and schools, wherever you take us all. Now, Lord, as we open your word and begin to study the principles it teaches us, guide us, great Jehovah, into all truth. We ask this in the holy, precious name of Jesus, and we do so with a grateful heart. Amen. Very well, my friends. In Genesis chapter 45, we have the model of a person who was greatly offended and betrayed by his own brothers and by those for whom he worked and uh, into which he had entrusted his care and well-being. Uh, he was betrayed. He was uh, forgotten uh, by his cellmates, if, as you were, in prison. And uh, that too, that forgetting, was a betrayal. But we know the rest of the story. And you can look at uh, Genesis chapters 37 through 50. And if you haven't read that story of Jacob, uh, I'm sorry, of Joseph and his brothers and the sojourn in Egypt and how God used him and ultimately the nation of Israel to bless and ultimately to convict uh, the, the leaders and the people alike in Egypt, then I encourage you to uh, just spend some time uh, reading Genesis chapters 37 through 50, the story of Jacob's son, Joseph. And we're just going to take a, a, a little snippet out of this story in chapter 45. This is after Jacob... Uh, I keep calling him Jacob, don't I? This is after Joseph had been in prison for 13 years. Remember, he was a mere lad of 17 when his brothers threw him into that pit, that dry well, and uh, first intended to kill him and then saw reason to make a profit from him and sold him to the uh, Ishmaelite traders passing by by God's providence. Uh, and so he was sold into slavery in Egypt. And then 13 years later, uh, by God's grace, by his ability, and, and by the desire to serve him and do his will that was in uh, Joseph, he was able to interpret Pharaoh's dream and by that interpretation and by the fulfillment of it, rescued not only the nation of Egypt, but his own nation and many nations in the world and became uh, the prime minister of, of Egypt, second in command only to Pharaoh himself. You know that story. 
Ultimately, uh, as he's performing his duties, God brought his brothers to face him. And indeed, the, uh, the first thing they did was prostrate themselves before him, fell down and bowed before him in the, in the best of Middle Eastern tradition and in direct fulfillment of Joseph's earlier dreams, perhaps at least 13, if not 15 years or, or more, prior to this and when they finally discovered who this was when when joseph revealed himself to them oh great fear fell upon them uh, because they instantly remembered what they had done and how they deserved any punishment that this great lord of egypt their own brother their own baby brother except for benjamin uh, could levy out against them, and yet he did not. Yeah, he called them to himself. Now, that's where we're going to pick it in, up in Genesis chapter 45, and I'm going to beginning and begin reading in verse 4. I did post a link to the, to the study notes on my uh, update this morning. So you avail yourself to those study notes, and this is uh, in a text box in those study notes on the second page. Genesis 45, 4, and I'm reading out of from the New American Standard Translation of the Holy Bible. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Please, come closer to me. And they came closer. And he said, I am your brother Joseph whom you sold into Egypt. This was the great announcement that struck deep fear in their hearts. Now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves, which was the natural response, of course, because you sold me here. Now that is a strange statement, a strange request of, of Joseph, of his brothers. Don't be angry. Don't be upset because you sold me here. You say, are you kidding? Jo Joseph is the one who should be angry and upset, but he's not. Listen to what he said. For God sent me here. Yes, you threw me in a pit. And yes, you, sh you sold me to the Ishmaelites. And yes... They sold me into Egypt. And yes, I spent 13 years as a slave. But it was God who sent me here. He sent me here before you, in advance of you, for a purpose. To preserve life. You know, that's what God is always interested in. Is to preserve and enhance your life. For the famine that brought you here has been in this land these two years. They had seven years of plenty. They had seven years of extraordinary crop production. And Joseph managed the, that production and the yield from it. And he took 20% of that production and stored it away for the the bad times to come 
Friends, are you doing that? Are you storing away? Or are you just saying, well, God's going to take care of me. I don't have to worry about that. Well, perhaps not, but you do need to be wise, do you not? You do need to be wise. And you need to prepare for the future. Hmm, seemed like that was my last podcast series, preparing for the future. Ah, but I digress. He says, the famine has been severe in in this land for these two years, and we've got five years yet to go, in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. Don't bother planting a seed. It's not going to come up. God sent me here. He reiterates, God sent me here before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. And indeed, that's exactly what God did and that's exactly what Joseph saw. And now he was proclaiming that to his brothers. Now, therefore, now that you've got a bigger frame of reference It was not you who sent me here, but it was God himself who sent me here. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh. Now that's ironic because Pharaoh, uh, perhaps an earlier Pharaoh, was was to be uh, Moses' adopted father. Uh, There's so much irony here. It really is. But now he says, I am now an ad- a father in the sense of I'm a, a caretaker and an advisor, a counselor uh, uh, to Pharaoh of the most trusted sort. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his household. And he's made me ruler over all the land of Egypt. He was prime minister in today's parlance and, and governmental structures. He was prime minister of Egypt. Wow, this firstborn of Rachel, this most beloved favored son of Jacob, was now the head over all the affairs of Pharaoh in Egypt. Okay, so isn't that a great story? Don't you love the story of Joseph? Don't you think that there are so many things for us to learn here today that regardless of our circumstances, regardless of how we've been treated by others, God is still in control. There are six basic aspects of forgiveness that we can learn from the story of Joseph and how he interacted with his brothers in this story. First of all, forgiveness allows the person who has been offended, the, the, the plaintiff in the case, it allows you to have a positive attitude towards the offense not a negative attitude towards the offender. Okay, do you get that? Has somebody violated you? Has somebody betrayed you? Has somebody done you wrong? How do you look at not just what they did, but who did it? Don't we have great animosity in our natural selves towards the offender? 
And yet we can look at that offense, what they did. In Joseph's case, his brother sold him into Egypt. That was the offense. What was behind that offense? His brother's bitterness. What was the result of that bitterness? Them, in their minds, murdering their brother. Okay, yes, a couple of the brothers didn't want to murder him. They didn't want to kill him. They said, let's do what? Let's just sell him to these guys. That way we'll at least preserve his life. But in their heart, in their heart, Joseph was dead because of what they did. They did not know he was to be preserved alive by God himself. So, what did Joseph do? He looked at the offense of being sold into Egypt. And he said, God used that as a tool, as a platform for working out His will for His people. And even for the people who enslaved me. Okay, second of all, all right, first... Shows it allows the offended party to look at the offense and look at it in a positive light. Okay, I see what's going on here, and I see that God is going to use this rather than really being negative and hateful towards the offender. Okay, we got that part? Okay. Secondly, it views the offender as God's instrument. You see what Joseph did? He says, you know, you meant it for evil, he would say later, but God meant it for good. So you, indeed, in this offense, were God's instrument in blessing not only me, but your own selves, and in time, and indeed, the remnant of Israel. Third, it sees the wounds that have been inflicted as God's way of drawing attention to the offender's needs. Now this is getting deep. You see the wounds. Now how was how do you reckon Joseph was treated in prison? You ever think he got whipped? You ever think he got put in stocks? and had his wrists and his ankles raw from rubbing on those iron shackles? You think he had wounds that maybe the rats in that prison, he had to shake them off as they, they came at him when he was trying to sleep? Oh, deep, deep wounds. That's just the physical wounds. How about the, the emotional wounds of being betrayed by your family? Deep, deep wounds. And so Joseph was able to look at the the wounds and the hate and the hate and the, and the the hurt and the betrayal that he felt as God's way of drawing attention not to himself but to the needs of the offenders. Uh, the offenders, Jacob's brothers, were were in the gall of bitterness. My goodness, we can go and look at each one of these brothers and see that, that there wasn't a perfect man among them. They're just like there's not a perfect man among us. They were all faulty. They all had their problems. 
And Jacob, by the pain of his own wounds, was able to refocus that pain and say, what caused them to do this? How, how hurting must they be to have done this to me? Lord, how can I be your instrument in addressing those deep needs? Do you see that? Yeah, well, it's easy to see Joseph's needs, but can we see the needs of the ones that sold him into slavery? Can we see those needs? Well, that Joseph was able to do that. Number four, it recognizes that bitterness is assuming a right we do not have. It is actually saying, I'm your judge. When we are in the gall of bitterness, when we have found ourselves in that that negative, that cesspool, that rotting place of bitterness, my goodness, we have assumed the position of judge. And we don't only condemn our offenders, we condemn ourselves. My goodness, my friends, this is deep stuff here. <laughs> Number five of the six, it realizes... Forgiveness realizes that the offender has already begun receiving the consequences of his offense. Jacob, while he was still in stealth mode, okay, and his brothers were there before him and talking among themselves in their own Aramaic or Hebrew tongue, not realizing that Joseph completely and perfectly understood everything they were saying, they were revealing the guilt that they bore over what they did to Joseph. They were, they were expressing and articulating the guilt that they brought upon their father. Not only did they offend Joseph, they lied to Jacob. And they... They cut him open as surely as with a sword. And they were, they were realizing that. And God was bringing great conviction upon them. And Joseph, from his place, overhearing and understanding their, their conversations, he saw how God was at work already in dealing with their, their offense. And then finally... The sixth aspect of this forgiveness is that it is cooperating with God in the offender's life. I can be a party to addressing and healing that person that offended me. Okay, you say, well, that's all well and good, but how does this actually work? I, this is just beyond me, and you're right. This is beyond any of us. Let's look at how this works. I've given a couple of graphics, uh, put, made up a couple of graphics that I've put in your study notes, and you that are listening on the podcast will have to get those notes and look at these graphics because obviously uh, you're not going to see them when I post them up here. But here's the first one. This shows you the, the overall process of what is going on here. 
you see the offender fellow over here. And the lightning bolt represents the offense. And the broken heart down there uh, uh, represents the plaintiff in the case. The very one that, that was offended. Now, do you see that blue section? The triangle up on top, which of course represents God himself. And what is he doing? He's pouring out his grace upon you as you're offended. He's pouring out his grace. Now, what does that mean? Does that simply mean that he's showing you favor? Uh, well, my friends, it's a little more than that. Uh, you that have uh, been under my teaching for a while have understood that I define grace this way. It is the dynamic Yes, it's undeserved, but it's a, it's a dynamic force from God by which He instills within the recipient of that grace the desire and ability to do His will. Okay, let me repeat that. Grace is the dynamic force from God by which He instills within the recipient the desire and ability to do His will. If we receive His grace, okay, if we're like the, the little broken-hearted guy here in, in, the, in the graphic, if, if, as God is pouring out the grace, and we can choose to either receive or reject that grace. Isn't that amazing? Let me show you another graphic, uh, which again is in your material. And we see kind of an expansion of the concept right here. You see the offender meeting out his offense, the betrayal, the, the harm upon the plaintiff in the case. We, you, you can see that, can you not? And so at that moment of time, as we've said, God begins to pour out His grace upon you. And if you are cooperating with God, uh, no umbrellas in that case, if you're cooperating with God and receive and apply that grace, then wonderful things happen. Uh, faith is built. Okay? Victory is obtained. Joy is, is exhibited even in the face of these terrible circumstances. And ultimately, you're able to truly love the way God loves. You see that? That is the process by which God turns bitterness to forgiveness. If, however, you resist that grace, that, and that's the icon there that, represented by the little, the little umbrella. You see it? And if you resist that grace and reject it, what happens? Bitterness happens. Frustration happens because you keep trying to solve the problem yourself and you cannot. Uh, defilement. You become unable to participate in God's, uh, in God's program and His ministry. And ultimately, separation now, we've talked before about what is the enemy, Satan's primary 
strategy and tactic uh, to destroy God's work among His people. It is separation, isolation. I was reading this weekend uh, after a, a rabbi named David Foreman and a statement he made just was so profound to me. And we'll close with this. The statement he made was that the temptation of loneliness, the temptation of loneliness is to seek solace where it ought not to be sought. May I say that again? The temptation of loneliness. You know, when, when we reject grace and, and begin to be separated from those that we love, even, even from those that would help heal us, then loneliness set it, sets in. We may not realize that's what it is. But the temptation of loneliness is to seek solace where it ought not to be sought. I hope you're writing, I hope you write that down, my friends. And that you meditate on that truth. And that you look at people who you know, you said, it's just a lonely person. Perhaps they've been abandoned by their mate or by someone they, they truly care about. Perhaps their family has abandoned them in the case of the elderly. Well, the temptation of that loneliness is to seek solace, companionship, where it ought not to be sought. That's why the bars and the shooting galleries for drugs are so full of lonely people who are destroying themselves sip by sip, drop by drop. Pray with me, my friends. My Father, thank you for the truth of this message. Lord my God, there are no doubt lonely people within the sound of my voice who are tempted to seek solace where it ought not to be sought. And they find themselves in the gall of bitterness, their wounds growing deeper and deeper and more infested. Oh, my Father, You are pouring out Your grace on each of these people right now. And I pray that they would turn to You and cry out, Abba, Father, even if they can't put into words the pain that's in their hearts, and that they find their solace and their healing in you and in you alone. Now these things, my Father, I ask in Jesus' precious holy name. Amen. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all now and forevermore. Thank you, my friends. God bless you.